How well do you understand the book of Judges? What would you say if somebody asked you, what is it about? What can we learn from it? Why should we as Christians in the 21st century even spend time considering it? After all, Christian faith is about the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial and resurrection and life in the modern world. Where does the book of Judges fit into all of that? Judges, in some ways, is is well known. Most Sunday schools at some point touch upon Gideon and consider how he was hiding away by the wine press or how his army was reduced down to 300. And then we've got Samson and he's famous for having a haircut and not taking things seriously when he should have done. But what can we learn from something like the book of Judges, which is a an extended narrative of many people and events a long time ago? The immediate context of the book, in chapter 1, verse 1, we see, it begins with the words, now after the death of Joshua. The book is placed in our Bibles just after the book of Joshua. And that's when these events took place. Joshua had taken over from Moses. The children of Israel had entered the promised land. They had conquered the promised land. But in Judges we find out that they hadn't really possessed the nation. The children of Israel had had entered and conquered, but the tribes hadn't really possessed their inheritance that the Lord had given to them. That job remained to be done. There were still many tribes and people groups living there. There were days of battle and struggle ahead for them to take possession of the land. But we need to to go back a little bit further to see the big picture of what's happening in Judges and why. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15, you'll find there that God gave a great covenantal promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. God made this great promise to Abraham. Verse 13. He said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity, the iniquity 
of the Amorites is not yet full. The Amorites were one of the peoples that lived in the land that was promised to Abraham. But God was giving them yet another 400 years before their iniquity was full, before they were ripe for God's judgment to come upon them. And the children of Israel were going to be the ones that would bring God's judgment upon them for their wickedness. And we see this clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 9, that the children of Israel were not being given this land because they were special, because they deserved it. Deuteronomy 9, at the the fourth verse... Speak not thou in thine heart. This is Moses speaking to the children of Israel before he died. Before Joshua would lead them into the land. Speak not thou in thine heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of those nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Not for thy righteousness, or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go in to possess the land, but for the wickedness of those nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. So, they had been told clearly they were not receiving this land because they deserved it. God was giving it to them so that they would go in and bring God's righteous judgment upon the people who lived there at the time. They were to be judged. Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read, the instructions that they were given when they were going into the land. Verse 3, they were told, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Verse 4, For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall you deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, burn their graven images with fire, for thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon thee, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, 
for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you, and because you would keep the oath which he swore unto your fathers. Again, it was all of God's grace that they were to receive this, but he had work for them to do, and they were to keep themselves holy. They were to be kept separate, that they would not be contaminated by the people that were in the land there. And that's why they had to drive them out. There was to be no mixed marriages, no intermingling. They were not to tolerate them to be there. However, not all the enemies they would encounter were to be treated in quite the same way. Some, verse 17, were to be utterly destroyed it doesn't say that in verse 17 uh, verse 17 how are they if thou shalt say in thine heart these nations are more than I how can I dispossess them thou shalt not be afraid of them but shalt remember that the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and unto Egypt so their victory would not be because of their own strength their own courage their own confidence but remembering what the Lord had done in delivering them from Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10, tells us how they were to deal with some of the people they were to come into contact with. Deuteronomy 20 verse 10 When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it then proclaim peace unto it and it shall be if it make the answer of peace and open unto thee then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee and they shall serve thee you see there in verse 15, Thus shalt thou do unto all the cities which are very far off from thee, which are not of the cities of these nations. So there were those who were potential enemies, but they were around the fringe areas. They were not the people that they had been told to utterly destroy and drive out of the land. These people instead were to be offered peace terms and to become uh, tributaries. In verse 16, But of the cities of these people which the Lord thy God hath given thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breathest, but thou shalt utterly destroy them. And there's a list of the peoples there. Strong words, utterly destroy them. Reminiscent of what happened to everyone who didn't enter the ark. Mm -hmm. They were utterly destroyed by the flood. And we remember when we think about these things that actually God's judgment is resting upon all who have not faith in Christ. It's a solemn subject. 
when we open a book like Judges, we have to bear in mind the words of Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. The Apostle Paul there had just quoted a text of the Old Testament. And he said, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. We can look back and see how God has dealt in the past. We can see His holiness. We can see His judgment. But also, we can see His grace and His salvation. We can see His covenant. We can see His promise worked out and kept faithfully. What is the main subject of the Old Testament? Very familiar words. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, the road to Emmaus, after the resurrection, verse 27, Jesus talking to the two there, the two who had been so despondent, having thought that he had offered great hope, but now he had died. Verse 27 of Luke 24, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That means he opened up to them from Genesis through Malachi and talked to them about himself. He found himself in the Old Testament. We must never forget that when we open up the Scriptures. We are learning about God. We are learning about His great salvation. We are learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know which Scriptures He turned to exactly and as it were although he didn't have them physically open before him. But which ones he referenced? But yet, we too can go back and find much about Christ in the Old Testament and learn much about him. And so, we can see the promise of a saviour from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 through the promises made to Abraham that in his seed all the earth would be blessed and that seed was within the nation of Israel being brought the, the, the great hope and the promise of it that line was in the nation of Israel down the years but in Judges we find It's somewhat tenuous. It's rather weak. It's not accomplishing. The nation's not accomplishing what we might have expected with such great promises around them. Hmm. 
when we actually now turn back to the book of Judges. Look at some of what it has to say here. Richard Rogers says the first two chapters describe the slothfulness of the tribes in executing God's commandments. The the first two chapters serve as somewhat of an introduction. They give us the picture of what's gone wrong. If you look at the, the, the chapter there, you'll see they began well. Verse 1, the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. So they began well. They sought the will of the Lord. And they listened. And Judah was the one that went up first. But when we move down through this passage, we come to verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron, But we know, don't we, what happened to the Egyptians. No matter how many chariots there were, no matter what they were made of, it wasn't a problem for the Lord. He destroyed the Egyptians with the sea, not an army. Judah had some success as the Lord was with them. But something happened. They failed when they saw the chariots of iron. And they didn't possess it. And this begins a series of did-nots through the rest of the chapter. The children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean. And so on. Verse after verse after verse of failure to obey what they had been told to do. This failure even happened when they were feeling strong and successful. Look at verse 28 there. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. That wasn't a fear of iron chariots. That was a desire to share in the work, the production, 
of the enemy. They looked at the profits that they could make rather than the blessings of obedience. Interesting what the Lord had told them to do. They looked at the here and now instead of remembering their Creator. In chapter 2, we hear God's solemn judgment. He begins with this word as the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bocham and said, I made you to go out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. A reminder of how he delivered them. And a reminder that he wouldn't break his covenant. But then, we read, verse 2, And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. But they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. We find the end of verse 4 that the people wept and sacrificed. But that didn't last. The people came to a time of great distress. In verse 16 we read, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. When trouble came, when they got tired and weary of the trouble, the defeat, the suffering, the bondage, they cried to the Lord. He could have said, you deserved it. They did. But instead, in grace, he raised up a deliverer, a judge, one who would lead and be successful in winning a victory. Every time we see one of these judges, we're seeing something of a saviour. We've seen something of God's grace. A little glimpse of what Christ would do. But oh, these judges were so weak, so frail, so like us. As you read through the book, you find time after time they would fail. 
we find the first judge, chapter 3, verse 9. They had been suffering again. They had served eight years. And they'd gotten tired of it. Verse 9, And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kaznaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Chushan Rishatharim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Chushan Rishatharim. And the land had rest forty years. And Othniel, the son of Kanaz, died. The very brief sort of reference to no real details but there's the pattern they're suffering because of their sin they cry out unto the Lord he raises up a judge the spirit of the Lord is upon a judge they are delivered they have peace and rest and then the judge dies and you read through there's twelve judges Some of them get a very brief mention. Some of them an extended portion. The book covers a period of perhaps some 300 or so years from the time of Joshua's death through to before the time of Eli and Samuel. This cycle carried on and on and on. The judges weren't in one particular geographic area. They, they ranged across the nation over the years. Again and again, they failed in what they were meant to be doing. They failed to trust. They failed to obey. And after their deliverance, they went back to where they had been. We see Ehud and Shamgar come next. Ehud had a a, a great victory, but it, it wasn't really the victory of a man of valor. He offered a present, and then it was a trick. He used his left-handedness to rather deceitfully kill the enemy. And Shamgar gained his victory. As you see there in verse 31 of chapter 3, with an ox goat, he slew 600 of the Philistines. These men were unlikely heroes. God was doing it in a very different sort of way. There was nothing much for the nation to be proud of in the way this was happening. It wasn't because they they had mighty armies that triumphed at every hand. The deliverances were very clearly of God's grace. 
In chapter 4, we meet Deborah and Barak. She was a woman that the children of Israel, verse 5, came to for judgment. We find her giving God's word to Barak. And he says, verse 8, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. It doesn't really come across as a great heroic soldier. Chapter 5 is a, is a great song of praise. And thankfulness stands out in the book. Thankfulness because of what the Lord has done. Verse 2, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. And verse 31, So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might. And the land had rest forty years. Deborah and Barak, in many respects, provide a, a highlight in this book. And then we we go down the page and we read chapter 6, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Midian. Night. Seven years. Again, they turn away from the Lord. Again, they are disobedient. They were impoverished, verse 6. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. This time, a prophet is sent, verse 8. Again, reminding them that he had brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, delivered them from the Egyptians. And verse 10 we read, And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. The command was to fear not. The obedience was to have faith, was to trust in the Lord, to know that he had delivered the nation from the bondage of Egypt and utterly destroyed Pharaoh's army. And what indeed were these Philistines compared to the army of the Egyptians that they had been delivered from? Fear not. Have faith. Trust in the Lord. He's more powerful. He can easily win over these enemies. But they were looking at the enemy, not at the Lord. That's always a great danger. We fix our eyes on the things of this world. Sometimes it's because we find things attractive. Other times... We are filled with fear. We have Gideon, 
There's things that could be said about Gideon, but the, the big point about Gideon is he was a very cautious man. He was another unlikely hero. And when it came to it, his mighty army was sent home and the Lord used 300. But even then, it wasn't their swords that caused the chaos and the, gave them the victory. The Lord had a different method. The victory was clearly of the Lord. The 300 could easily have been defeated. But the Lord gave that victory. Gideon is to be commended. Chapter 8, verse 22. When the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you. He turned down being made king. That was good. That was commendable. As he said, verse 23, The Lord shall rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. But then, what did he do? He had one request. Verse 24. He wanted the earrings, the golden earrings of the prey, which he was willingly given. And what did he make with them? Verse 27. He made an ephod thereof and put it in a city, even in Ophrah, and all Israel went thither a-whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. Not sure exactly what the ephod was, but seems to be some sort of image of some description that the people came and used as a form of worship. Hence it was a snare. We're not to be making images. Perhaps he was trying to make life somewhat easier for himself. I don't know. But he was wrong. He shouldn't have done it. It was leading the people astray. Samson. You must touch upon Samson before we finish Samson or perhaps we mentioned Jephthah Jephthah one of the strangest incidents in the book of Judges involves this man Jephthah the Gileadite a mighty man of valour son of an harlot What happened to him? He was chased out, verse 2, because of who his mother was. And he fled, verse 3. But, in process of time, after the children of Ammon made war, he was called back. The people wanted him to be a valiant fighter. He agreed to come. All well and good, you might say. Various things happened 
but we come down to verse 20, verse um, 30. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hand, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the dells of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it for a burnt offering. What was he doing wrong there? Well, it was a grossly rash thing to say because he didn't know what would come through the door. He may have thought it would be one of his animals. He may have thought that. Turns out, of course, it was his daughter rejoicing in his victory. But worse than that, he was trying to pay for grace. The Lord was going to give him the victory and he was doing a deal to say I'll pay you back for the victory with a special sacrifice if you give me the victory I will sacrifice that's not how grace works as I say Jephthah it's one of the, the strangest and saddest points of the book it would seem that he went through with his vow. It would seem, if he did, that nobody told him he didn't have to. Or if they did, he didn't listen. Because it was wrong, and because in any event he could have offered another sacrifice to redeem back his daughter. That was Jephthah. And then we come to Samson. What are we going to make of Samson in chapter 14? Great hero of the faith. But, but, Samson. Samson didn't take anything seriously. Look at how his birth was announced. Um, I've lost my place here. We're in chapter 13, actually. His, his, his birth, the, the announcement that he would be born is very special because the, the, the angel of the Lord came to uh, chapter 13, verse 2, to a certain man of Sorah, the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And, and, and they're told, clearly, he's to be a Nazarite, he's to be holy, he's, 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 his hair's not to be touched to be kept pure, as it were, unto the Lord. Even his mother was to be careful. But Samson, as he grew, what did he do? Chapter 14, verse 2. He came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me to wife. The end of verse 3. For she pleases me well. For it's, it's right in my eyes. Very literally. He wanted her. The rest of verse 3 there. The earlier part. 
his father and his mother are pleading with him to look among the daughters of his brethren instead of the Philistines. But Samson is determined to do what seems right in his own eyes. He's seen her, he wants her, he's going to have her. No questions asked. He does. But we don't. But we come to verse 4 and we read these words. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord. Knew not that it was of the Lord. You see, Samson wasn't going about this right at all. But the Lord was overruling. The Lord was using Samson's rebelliousness to gain a victory. You can read all about what happened. Samson treated so much very lightly. It's very sad to read about some of the things he said and did and his attitude. We end up in chapter 16 with Delilah saying, tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lies. He let himself be tied up. He was enjoying himself. He shouldn't have been. And in the end, he listens to her. And because of her charms and his own pride, he tells her about his hair. She cuts it off. And he is utterly humiliated. His eyes put out. He's held captive. He's utterly ridiculed. Verse 24 we read, And the people saw him. They praised, this is chapter 16, When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy. People were mocking the God of glory because of Samson. But Samson, his hair grew again. Samson came to a moment of seriousness. And in his death, he slew more than they which he slew in his life. Verse 30. As he had prayed and as he had then pushed the pillars and brought that building down upon the Philistines. Samson's body was buried. He brought deliverance through his death. But his body lay under those stones, hidden, lifeless. But it reminds us, doesn't it, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was humiliated. He suffered as he was arrested and so cruelly mocked. And yet he who could have delivered himself at any point submitted himself. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And by that death on the cross, He laid down his life for his people. 
His body was buried in a tomb. The stone was placed and sealed over it. But that stone rolled away. That tomb was opened up so the disciples could see inside where the grave clothes lay. He is not here. He is risen, even as he said. Samson reminds us much of what Christ achieved. But what a sorry sight Samson was. And in contrast, how glorious the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Judges ends very sadly with idolatry in chapter 18. With a a Levite and images in a house. Then we have things which speak really of what Sodom was like in many respects. Wickedness running riot in these last few chapters in the land. It's terrible how they approach dealing with some problems. But the key to it, summing it up, we read, in those days, chapter 25, chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Each individual was his own king. In some respects, isn't that what things are rather like today? We are told you can do what you want to do. You can describe yourself how you want to describe yourself. There's no objective reality. God's law, God's standards have been thrown out and cast aside. There was no king in those days in Israel. But immediately after the book of Judges, we've got the book of Ruth. What do we find in the book of Ruth? We find a stranger brought in. We find a kinsman redeemer in Boaz. We find the line of the Messiah continues. God's covenant is kept. There amidst the chaos, the Lord was at work. He was bringing out his purpose in grace and mercy. They didn't deserve it. But the Lord was faithful. We have a gracious God who doesn't deal with us as we deserve, but has looked upon us with great grace and mercy. May our eyes be lifted up and fixed upon Christ our Saviour. Amen. Let us pray.
Gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, as we come to consider items for prayer, we do ask that you 